Welcome back to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, and physics students from the Roaring Fork Valley High Schools. The students are gophers, spend several weeks working at the center during the summer, and get to talk one-on-one to some of the distinguished physicists who are here. I'm Patty Fox, and I'm hosting today's program, which is being recorded at the Aspen Center for Physics. Evelyn Steffi, Steffley, sorry, a rising senior at Aspen High School, will interview Cecilia Cirenci, a research scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and the University of Maryland. Cecilia earned her bachelor's and PhD degrees in physics from the Physics Institute of the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, followed by a postdoc at the Albert Einstein Institute in Potsdam, Germany, before becoming a professor at the Federal University of ABC in Brazil, where she still maintains strong connections. And she's going to explain ABC or ABC. Yes. Um, so I have been asked by many people why the university is called the Federal University of ABC. And no, we do not teach the ABC <laughs> at the university. We expect our students to have learned that already when they come to us. But uh, ABC is the name of a region in the metropolitan area of Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is a very large city. It has about 12 million people and the metro area has about 20 million people. This ABC region is made of three towns named after three saints whose names start with the letters A, B, and C. So the Portuguese loved naming their towns after saints. (laughs) And the saints' names are? André, Bernardo, and Caetano. (laughs) They're ABC. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Thank you for a little bit of geography as well as physics here. My pleasure. (laughs) Her research interests include relativistic astrophysics, testing relativity with gravitational waves, and understanding the details of black hole and neutron star mergers. She's also very active with education and outreach and maintains a busy schedule, both in the U.S. and Brazil, encouraging students to become interested in astrophysics. And she and Evelyn had a conversation a couple of days ago, and Evelyn enjoyed it so much that she came back and said, I think Cecilia would be a wonderful person to interview for the radio program. So here they are, having met and talked before, but they will start at the very beginning. So I'll start with asking you how you became a physicist. Uh, In Brazil, we have to choose what we are going to study in college when we are applying for college. So it's a little bit of a different system than here. I was very interested in physics. I had seen some documentaries. I watched Cosmos. with Carl Sagan, the original Cosmos series. I read the A Brief History of Time uh, by Stephen Hawking, and I thought that was all fantastic, and especially the curved nature of space-time that looked 
wonderful to me. I'm also a Stark a Star Trek fan, for full disclosure. <laughs> so it's uh, that also played a little bit of a role there. And um, when I was in high school, I decided that I was going to give it a chance, and I was going to apply for physics in college. Nice. So that also answers why you became a physicist, because obviously it just fascinated you. Um, so what else were you thinking of doing when you were my age? So when you were like 17? Okay, so when I was 17, I think at that point, I no longer seriously considered becoming a professional ballerina, which is <laughs> something that probably until a couple of years before that, I was still considering more or less seriously. Um, I also enjoy to this day a lot reading and writing, so I briefly considered becoming a journalist. I was also very good in mathematics, so when I was concerned that either going for the academic career in physics or going into journalism, those might not be very financially rewarding <laughs> professions, and hey, I was wrong about physics, right? <laughs> but I also briefly considered going into um, economics, thinking that yay, uh, better go where the money is, right? <laughs> but then I started reading about that and I found it was all too boring for me, personal opinion, of course. And I decided that I was going to give it a try with physics. But these are some of the other things that I was interested in. Yeah, very nice. Um, okay. So um, the other day in our conversation, we talked about one of your first projects, the Gravistar. Mm -hmm. Could you explain, you know, what a Gravistar is, what, you know, just everything about it, if you could? Right, sure. So the Gravistar is not what you con would consider mainstream physics, right? If you think that black holes are already weird and hard to understand, a Gravistar is weirder, right? <laughs> it's meant to be uh, an alternative explanation for astrophysical objects that we observe and we understand as black holes. Because black holes are described in Einstein's theory of general relativity, and that theory doesn't work well with the theory of quantum mechanics. A lot of people consider alternative theories and alternative models that might facilitate the marriage between these two very important theories. And the Gravastar is a model that plays a little role in there. It, um, from the distance, it's going to look very much like a black hole, but if you look close by, it doesn't have some of the odd black hole features that make it incompatible with quantum mechanics. So the Gravastar doesn't have an event horizon, it doesn't have a space-time singularity at the center, it's basically a very, very compact ball that could be the final stage of evolution of a very massive star. So in standard physics, we understand that very massive stars, which are, say, 10 times or more heavier than our sun, they will end up their lives as black holes. But in an alternative theory of quantum gravity, 
which we don't have, but we would like to have, and we know that it would need to have certain properties, that star, when it's collapsing, instead of forming a black hole, it could form a grava star. So that's um, a little bit of an introduction of what the grava star is. And as an alternative model, an important thing for physicists is that we want to test alternative models to see if they pass the test. Is this a good model or not? That's a very important thing, and that's what I have tried to do with the Gravastar. Is, is the Gravastar an object or a theory? It is a theory. Okay. It is a model for an object. It's absolutely um, um, a speculative model, okay. comes from a theory. And part of the work that I did was to compare the predictions for the Gravastar model with the actual observations of gravitational waves. And sadly, the Gravastar did not make the cut. Okay. So that was a kind of a neat result because it's, um, it's a lot easier to propose new theories than to rule them out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was something that was really important, I thought, is the idea that, you know, you had this amazing theory that really sounded, um, and sounded great and you were explaining to me how the calculations were they differed and how when the first uh, gravitational waves from a black hole were detected you ran those calculations and they didn't match mm -hmm. um which is like it sounds devastating but also super cool you know it's a great discovery yeah. um i also oh sorry continue i i just wanted to say that the gravastar is not my model Mm -hmm. It's somebody else's model that I try to test. And I have once, uh, more than once, met with one of the two scientists that proposed this model. And the first time I met him, he's a big, strong guy, right? And I was completely intimidated that he was going to be angry at me for trying to kill his baby. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a very, very nice guy, extremely interested in my results. And we still exchange messages and talk about it. And he is changing his theory. And he also wants to know what I'm doing. So this has been, so far, a very nice scientific interaction. Great. <laughs> Um, so what were your steps following the, I guess, the, um, the proof of the, the Gravistar, like the incorrect proof of the Gravistar, I guess? <laughs> right. So I have worked with uh, lots of different things. And um, the, the Gravistar thing took years, mm -hmm. actually, because first I was a PhD student and I calculated the signal of the Gravistar. And then I was a postdoc and I was supposed to do a completely different project with neutron stars, and that was very, very hard to do, actually. It took a long time. And then gravitational waves were detected, and I went back to the Grava star to say, oh, now that we have the signal observed, and I have calculated the signal before, I can compare the two of them. So things that I have been doing since then, um, a lot of cool work has been done by my students, both undergraduates and graduate students, and uh, has to do with predicting uh, signals in gravitational waves, or also understanding what are the ingredients that go 
into gravitational wave signals. And um, I have also um, an a different project that is going on now that has to do with gamma rays instead of gravitational waves, although inspired by gravitational waves as well. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, and I was just thinking it would be, because I know a lot of people can be confused by the term quantum, quantum physics. Um, so the other day I asked you, um, like, how far does um, normal relativity go and like where do they meet quantum physics and normal relativity right yeah so they are going to meet when you have very strong effects of general relativity so we know that general relativity is a theory that explains gravity and we can understand gravity in lots of different regimes we have the apple falling on Newton's head, right? We can uh, drop stuff. I drop stuff all the time. Gravity is strong around me, I think. <laughs> and uh, we can use gravity to explain the tides, the planets going around the sun, galaxies, uh, the universe in large scale. That's cosmology. And that's all very good. Right, And uh, some people say that uh, Einstein proved that Newton was wrong. We had that conversation the other day. Yeah. I don't think that's the right way of saying it. Newton's theory is great where it applies, but you need to extend it to Einstein's theory where Newton's theory doesn't apply anymore. So you are going in the direction of stronger and stronger gravitational potential. And it is in that direction that we expect that we are going to have general relativity and quantum mechanics meet when we have a very strong gravitational field, very strong curvature of space-time, and we have not been able to prove it right there yet. We're getting close. The best that we can do so far is with the detections of gravitational waves from in spiral and merger of stellar mass black holes. But so far, the signals that we observe agree beautifully with Einstein's theory. We know that there should be a place where the corrections from quantum mechanics should play a role, but actually we don't know where that happens. We don't know if that's ever going to be measurable, but we are still looking for it. Hmm. Very nice. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Um, so I guess another question that I have, um, I guess drifting away from quantum physics, mm -hmm. um, but also not because quantum physics is everywhere. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what are you doing with the gamma rays? Because I know that, you know, gamma rays are very dangerous. <laughs> so how are you able to measure them um, and work with them and theorize? Right, that's a great question. And indeed, gamma rays are very dangerous for life. Uh, you know that X-rays are dangerous too. So when you're going to the dentist and they take an X-ray, they try to protect you, right? So yes. that you only get the X-rays where they need to go. And that's because of their high energy and gamma rays have even higher energy. So they are dangerous. Luckily, our atmosphere shields us 
from gamma ray radiation coming from the universe, which is a problem for gamma ray astronomers <laughs> because they cannot easily measure these rays here on Earth. So they are detected by special satellites in orbit. So they need to be above this protective layer of our atmosphere to detect the gamma rays. And this has been going on for many years already. We have some very cool uh, satellites from NASA and other space agencies that work now. So one of them is called SWIFT because it uh, can turn very fast if there is a signal. The other one is called Fermi in honor of the Italian physicist. And um, another one that I have worked with was called Betsy and it worked in the 90s, so a long time ago. And uh, what I've been doing with the uh, gamma ray data, by the way, I'm fully a theorist, so I don't work with the instrument. I don't work directly with um, building the instrument or acquiring the data. But once the data is there, I can work with that. <laughs> so I have worked with um, gamma ray data from these three instruments. OK, very nice. Um, so with that data, um, what have you been finding? What have you been working with? Okay, so the, I need to explain you a little bit of what people see in what are called gamma ray bursts. And these are sudden bursts of gamma ray radiation, as the name says. And uh, they have been studied since early 90s or even a little bit before that, and people have been noticing that there are two types of gamma ray burst. And sometimes physicists are very creative with their names, sometimes they are not. So we have the short gamma ray bursts and the long gamma ray bursts. <laughs> and the distinction is clear. Now, yeah. how short is short, how long is long is something that people um, have been discussing a lot lately, but usually we're thinking about a transition at two seconds. If the signal is shorter than two seconds, it's short, otherwise it's considered long. But there is something more important than just how short or how long it is, which is uh, where is the signal coming from? What is the type of astrophysical process that generated this very energetic signal that, by the way, traveled across the universe because these are sources that can be very far away. So the long ones are supposed to come from the collapse of very massive stars, the ones that are collapsing and going to form a black hole. The short ones are supposed to come from the in spiral and merger of a system made of two neutron stars. And maybe I should explain a little bit what neutron stars are, but I'll stop now in case you have any questions. Um, I mean, please go ahead, explain the neutron star. <laughs> okay, so if you think that the black hole is complicated, that the gravastar is kind of odd, the neutron star is a whole different level of complexity because the neutron star is something that we absolutely 100% know that exists and it's made of matter. So we need to explain that matter, but that matter inside of the neutron star is basically screaming because we take 
almost the same mass as the sun, right? And the sun is huge. Okay, so we take mass that is approximately the same of the sun, maybe a little bit more, and we compress it in the size of a city. So think about the sun, and you make that huge ball of the sun, and you squeeze it in a radius of about 12 kilometers. Sorry, I don't do miles. I'm not <laughs> sure how many miles that is. <laughs> and, uh, well, it's, it's less. It's eight. Thank you. More or less. <laughs> Uh, so that is the, the size of a neutron star. Okay, so what happens then? What happens when I take normal matter and I try to compress it like that? If I were to do a very simple calculation, you know that density is mass divided by volume, right? So you have that mass of the sun and you can calculate the volume of that ball of that sphere, you will find that the neutron star is on average about as compact as the nucleus of an atom. Now, if you have studied atoms in school, you know that atoms are mostly empty space. You have a very compact nucleus and then you have electrons kind of far away. The atom is mostly empty space. Now you make a big object as compact as the nucleus of the atom. And that makes matter do weird things that we still don't fully understand. So there are a lot of people, even here in this workshop at the Aspen Center for Physics now, who are trying all sorts of different approaches to understand what's going on there. And you can try to understand it looking at the gravitational wave signals from two neutron stars going around each other. You can try to understand it with nuclear and particle physics experiments. Um, for example, when people try to collide heavy ions in accelerators, they produce something that is a little bit like what's inside of a neutron star, but not quite. Uh, you have people doing these amazingly complicated, huge simulations on computers, trying to account for the interactions between every particle inside of the neutron star and understand basically how this matter reacts. If I try to squeeze it, how much pressure does it make trying to not be squeezed? Okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so are you saying that the gamma rays detected from the neutron stars are different than um, the more common black, you know, black hole stars, I guess? Uh, yes. Yes, they are. They are different. Uh, the short uh, the short gamma ray bursts, they are more energetic. The long ones coming from stars collapsing to black holes, they are less energetic. And we know for sure now that neutron star merging uh, do emit those gamma ray bursts because we detect them together in 2017. And that was very, very exciting because we've been detecting these gamma ray bursts all the time, right? Mm -hmm. We have hundreds, thousands of them that we have already detected. But the first time that we saw in the gravitational waves two neutron stars merging, mm -hmm. we also saw a gamma ray burst that arrived 1.7 seconds later. Wow. And that was very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and I guess to finish off, I'll ask quickly, um, 
what would you have, or I guess, what would your advice be for somebody who's aspiring to be a theoretical physicist? I will say that if that's what you love, you definitely should go on and try to do that. It's not easy. Nobody said that it was going to be easy. Nobody went to do physics because they thought it was going to be easy. But it's, um, I think it's a lot of fun. You get to read a lot. You need to uh, work on your math because that's going to be very important when we see the documentaries and we read the popular science books. It's all very beautiful and colorful, but in order to be able to do stuff, you really need the language of mathematics. You need calculus, you need algebra, you need all of that. But these are also just the tools, so building your physical intuition is very important. And maybe the last thing is just trying not to forget that as beautiful as a theory can be, it still needs to be compared with nature in order to be a good and valid theory. We do this because we want to explain what we see in nature. Cecilia, that was one of the most interesting conversations, and Evelyn, that I have heard. It was I actually learned more in this half hour about astrophysics than than I have in many other conversations. So thank you so much. And um, Cecilia, your questions were really relevant and right to the point and carried on beautifully, so thank you. Um, just to remind you, uh, Cecilia Chiranti, mm -hmm. is that close enough? It <laughs> is, it is. Cecilia is, her name is, is um, Italian, but pronounced differently in Brazil. Um, she is a research scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and the University of Maryland. And Evelyn Steffley is a rising senior at Aspen High School and has been a wonderful go for this last couple of weeks. Tune into Radio Physics on the fourth Tuesday of every month at 4.30. And for more information about our Gopher program and uh, other events at the center, please visit the Aspen Center for Physics website at aspenphys.org or give us a call. I'm Patty Fox, hosting today's program. Thank you.